Evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you this evening. And we are joined tonight by Dr. Justin Sharp. He is with the Cooperative Institute of Severe Weather and High Impact Weather Research and Operations out at the uh, Weather Center at uh, Norman, Oklahoma, where NOAA and the Storm Prediction Center, uh, National Weather Service, all of those offices. We've talked about the Weather Center before. So that's where Justin is stationed. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about tornadoes. And there's a new project out called Tornado Tales, uh, talking about your experiences with tornado, uh, tornadoes. And tonight uh, we're wanting to learn about this new program and see how it can apply to the general public and how you can contribute to some of the research being done as well. So Justin, uh, we appreciate you joining us tonight and uh, happy to have you. I'm really excited to hear about this project. Uh, I saw the, uh, the the press release a couple of weeks ago and I was like, man, we've got to discuss this. So uh, first of all, before we kind of get into the project, uh, kind of a first time guest question that we always ask everyone is uh, kind of introduce yourself and tell us how you really got into this weather community. I mean, we all have our story. So we would like to hear about your story. How did you get uh, so involved in weather? Yeah, so that's interesting. So my PhD was at King's College London, and I did that in disaster risk reduction. And I actually looked at transformative learning and disaster risk reduction, which, you know, sounds very flowery, but basically it's, you know, what sort of learning transforms people. And what I did is I went out to California and I studied community emergency response teams and a Spanish language version of those called Listos. And I looked at to what extent they could transform themselves, their lives, and also their preparedness towards a range of different hazards. So earthquakes, tsunamis, fire, you know, you name it, all of those things that you get out in California. So I finished my PhD in 2018. I did some work for the UN Disasters Agency for six months. I did some lecturing, but I hadn't nailed down that job, right? Where, you know, you've got a little bit of permanence and it's, you know, it's always a little bit tricky when you've when you've finished your PhD, you're not sure whether even your PhD is going to be worth anything, whether anyone's going to hire you. And um, I, I literally found out about this job here on Twitter. A friend of mine who, who works in a Washington think tank said, hey, Justin, have you, have you seen this job opportunity? And I went, no, no, I haven't. And so I looked into it and um, it, it wasn't zero then, as you've uh, said at the beginning, it was, uh, it was a, another cooperative institute, which we've transformed from and into since then called SIMS. And so I had an interview, it was online because I was in London and then they offered me the job and I had to get spun up and, I, and I, I came out here and my first job was looking at epidemiology of tornadoes. So I had a kind of a bit of a grim start. My first three to six months was literally looking at all the different fatalities, all the literature on the fatalities and actually doing a great big meta-analysis of those to find out what we might be missing. And it was actually doing that that I realized that we're missing something really obvious. And the really obvious thing was that tornadoes are really survivable, even in one of the worst recent tornadoes, which would I would say would be Joplin, Missouri. Um, I think we'd work the figures out at 98.8% of the people exposed, i.e. underneath the tornado as it went through Joplin, Missouri, survived. And although those that lost their life is a tragedy, it shows how infinite survivable tornadoes are, even at that EF5 scale. And so, you know, these these are I got more and more into this. And so I work now in the Behavioural Insights Unit, which is, uh, you know, uh, within the Cooperative Institute and associated with the National Severe Storms Laboratory. And that's really, really useful because it means I get to, you know, be in that academic world, but also be in the practical world and actually seeing how research transforms into operations. 
And one of the things that I've been really, really keen on is taking our research back into the community and seeing what they do with it and what they feel about it. So thinking about what people feel that they can and they can't do when a warning is issued, what sheltering options they have, what sheltering options they don't have and why, and whether we need to start addressing those. So we can unpack this a little bit more as, as things goes on, but I think that that is tells me a little bit about my uh, kind of my background. I think the other thing is, 20, what's it, 2004 tsunami in the Indian Ocean. Um, I, was, I was working in a school, a high school in England. I was a geography teacher teaching 11 to 18 year olds. And I raised money to buy a seismogram, uh, you know, measures earthquakes. And we measured that earthquake that, you know, was a teleseismic event, went around the world. And we measured it. And then I started explaining to students and then to wider communities, you know, about it. And that, got the attention of the United Nations, who then got me to write a little report that went in a, a document about how you teach about and, and learn about these sorts of hazards. And that's really how I then got into the academic world. So I kind of, I've come at it from kind of a couple of different ways, really. Um, but the other thing is this, you know, I've said it before, weather impacts our daily lives. We talk about the weather, we share our stories about the weather, good and bad. And so, you know, it's integral to who we are as human beings. That environment is incredibly important to us all. Let's talk about uh, the Tornado Tales of the project. Uh, you're, you're talking about, you know, social science and, and how, how we as meteorologists, how we as the weather enterprise can better communicate to um, people who are listening or people who are following the weather or, or trying to get information. Uh, so, I, I, you know, that that's a big thing that uh, the weather enterprise is still, we've been working on it, it seems like um, since uh, April of 2011 with the storm in, in Birmingham, the Tuscaloosa tornado, and then Joplin. Then we have tornadoes in Moore, Oklahoma. And so uh, social science has really been a big thing that we've been trying to work on and see how we can better communicate threats of tornadoes. So uh, tell us about uh, this program, Citizen Science. So that means everyone can be involved. Uh, kind of tell us about the details and, and the goal of what you all are trying to accomplish. I think really you've got to start with a tiny bit of background here. So there's a around about a thousand tornadoes are impacting communities across the United States every year. So if you have an average of about 44,000 households impacted and approximately two to three people per household, that gives us around about 111,000 people who are exposed to tornadoes each year. But very little is known about how individuals receive, interpret and respond to the information that they get, such as, you know, through tornado watches and tornado warnings. And in fact, only a small sample of tornadoes has ever been studied. And most often those are only the largest tornadoes. So that was going back to, again to the Joplin tornadoes and the Moore ones and the Oklahoma City ones and the Tuscaloosa ones that you just talked about. What we needed was generalizable information on the tornado warning response after real world events. And so this is, as you say, a citizen science tool. It's an online tool that provides a way for people to anonymously report their tornado experiences. So it asks basic information about uh, what they did in the watch and the warning, where they were, what sort of structure they were in, uh, whether they took shelter, where they took shelter. And I think that it's really important to look at both the watch and the warning, right? Because most people know that warning means I've got to be in my safe space. 
I need to be really paying attention. But the warning can be over this really long time period. It can be a day, half a day, a couple of hours beforehand. So how much attention are people paying in those timescales? And are they preparing them? Are they using it as an opportunity to go, right, I need to make sure that my safe space is cleared out, wherever that safe space is. Or I need to make sure that I know that I can get to, the, to you know, shelter and that the car is running and it's gassed up if I'm going to another place. Because the other thing is not everyone's shelters in place. You know, we have sort of made this assumption that, you know, everyone, well, not everyone, but many people live in uh, kind of uh, permanent site built homes. But we know that 50% of all fatalities occur in mobile manufactured homes. And it's about, it, it's good that, and right that we say, get out, leave those structures. They are not safe. But where are they going? And how are we as a society saying, yeah you can get out but now you need to work out where you're going doing that in the warning that's too late right people need to be thinking about this ahead of time and so there are things going on across the southeast so uh, alabama has passed something called the safer places law which i passed about a year ago and the idea of that is that churches businesses etc might be able to offer themselves open as shelters during these events for these people who are most vulnerable in our society and the whole point of the law is kind of almost like a good samaritan law so if something happened people wouldn't be suing and things like that so to give those people protections as well and i guess really what we get with this is my gosh is this a complex issue or what and this is my job <laughs> this is my job is trying to make sense of all of these complexities and not say that I've got all the answers. And I think that's what's really key about this Tornado Tales is that hopefully that will give us some answers that we don't know or we're not expecting, or maybe it reaffirms we're doing exactly the right things. As time goes on, what we're hoping is different markets, different areas of the country might feel differently or may use different sheltering options. What are they? If we know those, those things can be transmitted to those local media markets and those broadcast meteorologists, and they can be giving really localised preparedness kind of advice rather than the more generalised uh, preparedness advice that we get now. Um, and again, we're talking about this being over a long time period. I would like this to be running for a good 10 years. Um, and what we can hope to do is report out every year or so this is what we found this year this is what happened here that's what's happening here and share this with other scientists as well we're not sort of taking this all for ourselves we will be sharing this with other scientists with other social scientists with broadcast meteorologists with other people in the in the weather enterprise because it's really important and most importantly the public because you know they're the ones that we're asking for their opinions their experiences um and i think the last thing to mention here is we are collecting detail about how people felt did they feel safe? Because um, I think that's really important. And that's something that I think that I got from the, um, the USGS is, did you feel it at? Which is what inspired me to do this in the first place. I got a question a couple of years ago at a conference and I couldn't answer it. And I was like, and it wasn't specifically about this, but it made me think hard. And then I was like, hang on, why do we not have, do we have this? So I had to do some research first and go, maybe this exists already. Maybe I don't want to be doing something that someone's already done, but no one had done it. And then it took two years to bring to this stage right here. And that's partially because it's a NOAA product. That means the government is collecting this. 
that has to go through incredibly strict procedures uh, through the Office of Management and Budget. And I also made sure that when we were doing this, we weren't collecting private identifi identifiable excuse me, information because I wanted people to have trust in this, that this is an, anom excuse me, an anonymous product, which means they have faith that they can give us their information and you know, we're not going to be you know, trying to use that for anything else. And, um, you know, we don't ask people for names. Sometimes people give us names. We've stripped that out if we were sharing that information with people. Do you know what I mean? So that we know that Bob at so-and-so address is not, is not giving away all of his secrets about what he did and what he didn't do. Maybe, maybe elaborate a little bit on some of the differences that you see with nocturnal tornadoes to the Midwest towards the Gulf, northern Gulf states versus the southeast region. Like where, where are the risks higher in some of these areas and, and what, what sort of... Uh, what times of the year should folks should be looking for tornado tornado activity in the in, at the night the nighttime hours, right? So I think one part of this is that uh, nocturnal tornadoes. When are they occurring? Well, actually, they can occur at any time of year, and I think we're seeing this more. And I think actually that's an incredibly important thing to uh, get out to the public. So I'm I've been working. One of my other parts of what I do is I've been working with Mississippi Alabama Sea Grant. So do you remember right at the top of the, the program, I was talking about, um, you know, how we want to hear from the public. So we've got a project going there, which is really literally outreach and education. And, you know, we've even got a, um, a, a six hour program of um, readiness for severe weather. But one of the things we did, I'm going to hold this up. I'm going to tell me if you can see it. There you go. Tornadoes can and do happen, happen at night, but then were you ready for the magic people? So if I turn that, have several ways to receive warnings. So I produce, well, I produce this, we produce this as a team working closely with Mississippi, Alabama Seagram and some very talented kind of graphic people here at the National Severe Storms Laboratory to produce this lenticular magnet. And the, there's a reason I did, that we wanted to do this. One, I wanted a fridge magnet. If you give someone a leaflet or a piece of cardboard or a postcard, it kind of gets buried underneath stuff on the kitchen table, right? People just kind of don't pick it up again and maybe go, what was that? Eh, whatever, and they throw it away. You want something like this, boom, goes on your fridge. You can walk past it every day. Kids like it because they can play with it. But the idea is to get that message out that tornadoes can and do happen at night and to have those multiple uh, ways of receiving messages there and that is really key to what you were talking about in terms of survival rates in terms of impact on people and in terms of the risks if you are increasing the ways that you can get alerts you are decreasing your risk because maybe you'll be a, 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 you know ahead of the game as we were talking about maybe in the watch um and then the other thing that is to come back to in terms of like um you know um nocturnal tornadoes is you know, I've seen a lot more stories of late where people have done the right thing and they've tried to do the right thing. But what I also know from my own research and from going down to talking with people in those communities in Arkansas and Kentucky and Tennessee is that people knew in some cases, 90 minutes that this thing was coming towards them. It was, you know, a series of long track tornadoes that just went on and on and on. It was, you know, one of the I think it was the second kind of longest or you know sort of events in history in terms of that that, that we've recorded anyway people knew it was coming down the pipe they knew in uh kentucky they knew in um tennessee what was happening and pretty much when and that really is partially to do with what the weather service were doing it was partially to do with what the broadcast meteorologists were communicating to folk 
the worst thing that I see, and when I talked to some people in that, you know, in Mayfield, Kentucky, it was like, you know, they just didn't have a choice of shelter. There was no, there was no shelter open for them. They didn't have a basement and they're there and they're praying. And my job is this, I, I don't want to feel people that prayer is their only course of action. I'm not saying that prayer is not a good course of action, but it shouldn't be your only course of action when these storms occur. And so this is very much about understanding that entire continuum of the watch and the warning phases, including at nighttime, and then have people got sheltering options that they can go to. And this is one of the things that really drives my research. So I hope that unpacks it a little bit more. It's the, the risk is very much about whether people have places to go, whether they get the information, and whether they take that seriously. My research more recently has shown almost everyone I talked to took this seriously. No one went, you know what? I just went out on the porch. You know that story you often get, you know, I like to go out on the porch and just watch them. That's great if you live out in the country somewhere and you can see for 30 miles and maybe that's an exciting thing to do. But when it's in city and you can't see and it's nighttime, I think that amps up the, you know, uh, the, the feelings about that and being scared about that and not knowing which direction it's coming from and i think that this is where the broadcast meteorologists do such a really great job of, of gap filling that knowledge you know what i mean you can follow along on your phone if the tv goes down or something like that so you know that that to say we're still learning we're still wanting to learn but i think the messaging communication has got better and better going forward where do you think we're uh best focusing our future efforts? Do we need to keep working on the advanced preparation to, or to, to telling people to focus on that? Do we need to focus on uh, on, on better shelters? Uh, basically, I guess if you had a, a bunch of, of grant money that you were in, in control of distributing, uh, where would you want it to go? It's always complex. I think it's going to be a combination. I think it is right that it's a combination as well. And it's right that maybe, you know, uh, local authorities, local government are working with a whole range of stakeholders to try and work out what works for them. So it's not about me dictating what should happen locally because I don't live there locally. I don't know enough about the situations, about a whole range of things. And this is something that I think is really important. This is why we're going out to the communities with the sea grant, uh, the, uh, the um, sort of teaming up with the Mississippi Alabama sea grant, is to learn from those communities. Are we missing something? Is there something we just haven't heard before? And I think what's really important here, Frank, is this power dynamic. So you you know you think about it, you know, as a research scientist, you know, you you, you kind of almost in a bit of more of a position of power. And what I don't want to do is go in parachute into uh, you know communities, kind of talk to them disappear right up my great right scientific paper that benefits me and that benefit doesn't go back to the communities i think that's one thing we're trying to avoid that extractive research so you know that's really my answer we need to understand more by going into the communities we need to talk to them more and i think that in, in answer to your question if i had that pot of gold or pot of money or whatever it was it really would probably be a combination but that combination wouldn't be distributed just how i thought it but how those local governments are best suited to do so in concert with their community groups, with their religious groups, with their, you, you know, with, with the general public. 
and with uh, mobile manufactured home uh, owners. And just returning to that for a second, one thing to kind of make sure is that not everyone lives on, say, mobile manufactured home parks. So in the southeast in particular, what happens is people tend to live in rural areas and they have that on a bit of land. They bought a bit of land. And what's the cheapest thing that you can put on a bit of land? It's a mobile manufactured home. But is that necessarily the safest thing as time goes on? Perhaps not. So again, there's that another layer of complexity because we've got that rurality there as well. And that means also those people are maybe a long distance away from emergency rooms or, you know, those sorts of things. So if they are impacted by a tornado coming through and they are severely injured, it takes them longer to get to hospital. And then maybe that increases the risk of fatality or more serious injury. What is was sort of the biggest culture shock for you uh, when you moved to America and to Oklahoma from uh, Great Britain? So I'm a Londoner. I'm from London. Uh, like I said earlier, I studied in London. I lived in London. I've worked in London. And one thing about London is public transport. It is everywhere. So I've got a little Brompton bicycle. I don't know what one of those, uh, if you know what one of those are, so they're a little tiny bicycle that folds up into three. I can cycle to the station. I can get on a train with that bicycle. I can get across to uh, Tower Hill in Bankman. I don't know if you've ever been to London and seen Tower Bridge, but where I lived in Upminster in East London, that's you'd get on a train, the C to C across to there, and then you could pick up a tube or what we call the underground train, or you could cycle along the River Thames to like King's College London. And I love that. And then I came out here and I don't drive. I drive a motorcycle, but I don't drive a car. Man, was that a culture shock. I had to get Ubers absolutely everywhere for the first few months. Um, and, 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 you know, I had to save up and then, you know, buy a motor scooter, which I now use. Um, my family and I uh, invested in, and I say invested, we bought a G. 20 Chevy van from 1994 so that this is a red thing that we cruise around in with the seats that do this so you know <laughs> because it's like being in a cinema seat so yeah that was the biggest culture shock for me and you know America lives on its wheels is, is a kind of a phrase and it, it really hit home that it really did so uh, what's your favorite thing about uh, say the cuisine in Oklahoma and comparing that to uh, uh, what you would find back in the UK and people don't judge me. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm vegetarian, pescatarian. I don't eat meat, right? So they do some incredible impossible burgers out here that you couldn't get in London at the time. Um, there's a place down here called the Garage Norman and they do this uh, mushroom Swiss burger, which is amazing. Like it is a proper American burger experience. And the impossible meat now is kind of getting really close to what meat is like with texture and everything and taste. and and yeah man honestly uh, yeah and um, you're making me hungry now thinking about that but yeah uh, like uh, really if an impossible burger is done really well and i've had the, re the really good impossible onion burgers as well because that's the thing out in oklahoma the, the onion burger right, so the I'm onion sure, burger, again, yes. please don't get offended like i'm not knocking if you eat meat you go for it i'm not judging anyone in any way but i'm vegetarian so I go for those impossible. Yeah, they are so good out here. Honestly, genuinely, absolutely amazing. Oh, and uh, I've re re found a real love for the Dairy Queen as well. Uh, so that's <laughs> that's an interesting one. I kind of we like I, my, my favourite is the the, the mochaccino blizzard with like Oreo cookies in. Only a small one, but wow. Yeah. Have you been to visit the Kindness yet? 
Uh, if so, where or what's a place you want to? So you see, that's a really interesting question. I sort of have and I haven't, but I did buy a fridge magnet because if I go to a state, I buy a fridge <laughs> magnet. Uh, apart from uh, randomly. So please send in uh, your fridge magnets from the following states. So I got a fridge magnet from Arkansas. I didn't get one from Tennessee, Kentucky or uh, Missouri we went through. I went through the boot hill of Missouri and we touched on Ohio as well at one point. So we crossed the Mississippi and the other river, uh, rivers as you're going up through there, which I found really exciting. And I usually get fridge magnets from places. So I've got one from Harvard because we were uh, up at the AMS in Boston a, a few years back. Um, I've been to California, but I need to get a fridge magnet and I've, I've not done that yet. I went to an um, integrated warning team meeting back in December 2019 in Clanton, Alabama, and we went through Charlotte Airport. So, and that was, and now I bet everyone knows this, the rocking chairs in the airport yeah. there. <laughs> so that everyone was sat there. So I, I think, I, you know, uh, my, my, my uh, work colleague was love, love this as well. And uh, yeah, that was, that was really great. And, and I think uh, bizarrely enough, that was the first time I tasted uh, an impossible burger Whopper from the airport there in the Burger King and got super excited because I hadn't actually, again, I hadn't even been in the US that long at that point, only a couple of months. So suppose uh, we, one of us, uh, gets called over to uh, to visit uh, the London area for a conference. Say there's something happening to the ECMWF and, and we're going to fly mm -hmm. into Heathrow or we're a Panthers fan and we're going to see them play at Wim Wembley next season. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Suppose that, uh, suppose, what, what is the thing that we should do while we're there? And uh, what's uh, one place we should go to eat if you had to pick just one? In terms of a place to visit, a very and free museum is just around the corner from Hoburn Station. And it's called uh, the Sir John Soames Museum. Sir John Soames was an architect who uh, was the architect of the current Bank of England as it is now and uh, many other buildings as well. He left his estate and his house and all of its items to the country in perpetuity, which is Latin for forever, by an act of parliament. And it is a tiny, tiny museum. It is a Georgian house. So you get this beautiful experience of being in a Georgian house. It is free to go in. And he collected curios and architectural pieces from across the world. He's also got paintings by uh, Hogarth, um, of the Rake's Progress, which is a story of destitution and gin in the 1700s, which is amazing to see. And they're hidden in these panels in this room. And if you ask the people who, uh, you know, are curators in the museum, they will just, it was like some weird secret room behind a secret room. It is not on many tourist maps, but it would be a fantastic place to go. And when I was at King's and we had visitors from Turkey and Italy and things like that, I'd take them there because it was so random, a little bit different, right? So I think that that's, that's the main thing. Eating, oh my gosh, that is very, very, very difficult uh, 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 question because it's so multicultural in London. But what I would say is this, to have a authentic, um sort of uh, english multicultural experience i would go to brick lane in east london uh liverpool street is the closest tube station or underground station and there you can go to a place called brick lane and on brick lane there are a series of restaurants there and they're all indian restaurants and bangladeshi restaurants 
So that is one place to go. For me, I perhaps wouldn't go there. I go to a place called Green Street, which is near the old West Ham Football Club. And that has South Asian food, which is um, all vegetarian and is amazing again as well. I don't know what your tolerance is for curry, um, but you can get mild curries all the way through to incredibly hot curries. But honestly, genuinely a, a great experience because that is a real mesh of our multiculturalism within the United Kingdom. Uh, and that's one place for it. There are others, of course. That's the problem with London. It's so huge. <laughs> if you wanted to uh, give out any promotional stuff for your social media or how folks can find Tornado Tales, uh, what, what's the best way they can do that? You can Google Tornado Tales Noah, uh, N-O-A-A, and that should come up in the search engines there. Um, and, and you'll see news stories about it as well. So that's a, a really useful thing to do. Um, I'm on Twitter at, uh, my handle is at uh, uh, edu for DRR so E-D-U the number four DRR that's just my personal one this is not an organisational one at all um, and I generally use that to tweet about um, natural hazards disasters from across the range of things not just uh, hydrometeorological ones but uh, you know uh, you know earthquakes you know tsunamis uh, vol volcanic hazards those sorts of things because it really is something that drives me and I'm really really interested in um, please take part in the uh, citizen science uh, you know, web survey if you can and if you are experienced. Oh, and the other thing that I, I forgot to say is that this could be used for historic tornadoes as well. So this isn't just like if something occurs tomorrow, it's, this, this might be that you were in a big tornado you know, several years back. This survey can take those and record those. And these are also really useful for for us as scientists to learn from those older events as well so just just something to for, for perhaps your uh, listeners or viewers to um kind of consider um so yeah that's that's it really i, I hope I, I genuinely hope that um like this has been <laughs> useful for you all um i've enjoyed myself um and uh yeah yeah i'm happy to do one of these again if, if you would like that if you'd like to have me on Awesome. We would love that. And for our folks who are listening or watching, um, after these big severe weather events that we cover here, we'll be sure to push out the Tornado Tales website. Um, that way you guys can document what you experience and you'll help uh, be helping out Justin and, and other folks who, uh, who, who go through these experiences. So Justin, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you all for watching us here on the Carolina Weather Group and listening to us. Be sure if you've not already to hit the like or subscribe button. Uh, on your favorite podcast platform or here on YouTube and you'll get the latest notifications when we have new shows that come out. So until next time, we hope you have a great evening and we'll see you back here soon on the Carolina Weather.